Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Own Personal Beatles with me, Robin Hallander. And my name is Jack Pelling. Hello, Jack. Um, Hi, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not too bad. It's uh, Monday night. I've just got back from a very long train journey, so I'm quite tired. So I might keep this one short, this intro shortish, and crack on with our brilliant guest. This week, we're delighted to welcome the folk musician Jim Murray in to talk about his own personal Beatles. And I think it's a really interesting one because I think it's really interesting talking about the relationship of Beatles music to folk music. And I think he brought some really interesting things to the table to talk about in terms of the Elvis Costello and Paul McCartney demos of Flowers in the Dirt. Mm. And we also talked about Bright Phoebus, the great lost folk album by the Watersons, which is often called the Sergeant Pepper of folk music. And so it was a really good, quite wide-ranging chat. Yeah, it was. We chatted for hours. Yeah. Um, so if you're in the Patreon and uh, you get the extended version of this, um, it does. Yeah, it was a nice sort of long rambly one. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was thoroughly enjoyable. I mean, I feel like I learned an enormous amount in this episode because I'm not as much of a sort of folk focused as mm. you. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, there's a there's a huge amount of stuff to explore if you, if you are a sort of fair weather folker. Yeah, <laughs> I think what what Jim is really good at in terms of talking about folk is the idea that you don't need to be that kind of folk is kind of part folk tradition and part make believe. You know, you don't need mm. to be from these folk traditions. You kind of you invent the tradition as you go along, and I think mm. Jim Murray's really good at doing that. And I think you know. He's a fantastic artist, and he works harder than any musician I've ever met as well. No, really? <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a superb musician, and yeah, yeah, he's so knowledgeable yeah. about music too. Well, he was a lovely, lovely guy as well. It was mm. a real pleasure to just have a, have a chat to him about yeah. um, and pick his brain for a couple of hours. So do enjoy that chat. Um, mm. And before we get started, we'll um, do a bit of... Well, we should also mention that um, our Patreon episode with Ellis James, where we went to Abbey Road a couple of weeks ago and uh, recorded our thoughts on what was quite a special evening, mm. is available on the Patreon now. So yep. if you go to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles, uh, you can sign up there if you if you like yeah. and uh, it's it's a really fun episode it's really great um, really fun to record and relive uh, a day I won't forget for many a moon <laughs> many a moon yeah <laughs> it was uh, it was great to just recount it and go through it and yeah it, it was a funny episode but like we were both very very moved by the whole experience of it so I think it was just really good to to, to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like we're recovering from some kind of. <laughs> I, I, I think we are recovering. Anyway, yeah. yeah. If yeah, if you want to keep sending in your emails, um, I've just got one quick uh, email pertaining to something that we chatted about in last week's episode with Laura Barton from Kieran Farrow. 
who says, Hi guys, love your podcast. I devoured loads of episodes during a period of self-isolation. Um, hope you got through that okay, Kieran. Uh, just digging into your Laura Barton episode and felt the need to nerd out. Please nerd away. Mm. Uh, regarding the descending line in chord progressions, while it is possible that something happened in India, John used it as the bridge section of And Your Bird Can Sing, and then exactly the same pattern oh, yeah. on the verse of Cry Baby Cry, which I think you yes. did mention. Yeah. And also uses a three-note descending line in All You Need Is Love, uh, That's which true. he also used on Instant Karma. Yeah, I hadn't, re- I hadn't realised the... I hadn't sort of considered the And Your Bird Can Sing, but yeah, yeah. When yeah. your bird is broken. Yeah, of course. Yeah, That's yeah. definitely one. Yeah, yeah. We had a review on Apple, which I thought was was nice. It was a five-star oh, no. review. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's a five-star review, but it read like a three. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he said he, he's complimentary about the episode, but he says he's listening from the start, and he says, my main gripe is the apparent lack of love for John. Mm. I think most Beatles fans realise he could be a nasty piece of work at times, but he got over it and he tried his best to make amends. A much nastier piece of work took him took him away from us, and who knows, he might have done so much more to put things right for the stuff he did when he was a very young man. Give John a chance. And oh. um, I thought Are we that, that mean about John? Maybe we used to be. Well, this is the thing. Like, I think I went back to the very first episode we did, and we are quite, quite blunt about John. But in case there's any mm. doubt, John Lennon is... Very my, good at music. He's my. <laughs> I think he is my favourite musician ever. I would say, in case wow, there's any, yeah. de- de- definitely. So uh, yeah, I'm sorry if that's the impression we we, we gave, but we we do also mm. want to talk about the, the the you know the more difficult side of John and problematic side, etc. But it was funny because I went back to that first episode, and of the several thousand things we got slightly wrong in the first episode, <laughs> one of them was I was labouring under this misapprehension that when the Beatles were recording Sgt Pepper they were recording the songs from Yellow Submarine simultaneously Mm. which isn't correct but the reason I thought it was true was because they recorded only a Northern song in the Sgt Pepper sessions and it was was rejected for the album. In Mm. my head I thought they did like a day in the life one day and then all together now the next day or something (laughs) but um, it led me to kind of go down a rabbit hole with only a Northern song Mm. And I was on the Wikipedia page, and in the notes it says, this song has been covered by Gravenhurst. Oh, really? As a band that you were in? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was in Gravenhurst, I don't remember this. <laughs> but <laughs> Did Gra- it ring a bell? Well, this is the thing. So, Gravenhurst was obviously a band I played in for a, for a year or two, but it was very much a solo project of Nick yeah. Talbot, who's sadly no longer with us. And it was really, really strange, because... I remember now Nick talking about it, that he loved that song. He was very much a fan of The Underdog, which I think is why he loved mm. that George Harrison song. And and I I, I, I sought out the, the, the cover. You can you can get it on YouTube. It was part of a Mojo album, which was kind mm. of a, to do with um, the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. So they got oh, artists wow. to cover songs from the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. And Nick covered only a Northern song which was 2012, I think. You can get the mm. CD on Discogs, I think. <laughs> but um, it was quite remarkable, actually, because this was something I hadn't heard before. And since Nick died, I haven't actually really been able to listen to Gravenhurst. But mm. when I heard that cover, it was like reconnecting with him. And oh. it was really quite strange and quite kind of um, moving and a, and a bit eerie in a way, because it was mm. like hearing his voice again. 
and mm. hearing him talk almost. And his yeah. and it's it's a lovely cover as well. Maybe we could play a little clip of it now. But absolutely, his voice is very very well suited to that kind of quite fey psychedelic melody line that George Harrison has in that song. And I don't know. It was just a, it, I, I, it's it's pleasing. One of the great things about doing this podcast is discovering all these new things. But mm. it's weird to kind of discover something that you know, that kind of brings it back to my own life, you know. Yeah, your own personal connection. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll play a little clip, and um, it was just kind of, yeah, it was just kind of a really nice moment that happened this week, really. If you're listening to this song You may think the chords are going wrong But they're not listening as always you can get in touch with us uh, by going to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact or you can go on the old social medias at personal Beatles on twitter and facebook and instagram um, we'll be back at the end to uh, tease next week's episode but for now enjoy this brilliant one with jim murray this week we're delighted to be joined by the folk singer multi-instrumentalist record producer bbc radio 2 folk award winner Mr. Jim Murray, welcome to your own personal Beatles. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's very nice to be on a podcast that I listen to. That's great. So <laughs> good. And you've got. Um, tell us about the microphone you're using to record this. Podcast. Oh, I'm, I'm I'm using a boring microphone. Okay. But I, I did think of using my. I've got a U87, not a real one, unfortunately. Right. But I've got a I've got a nice U, U, U47. Um, so I thought of using that. But, Just for um, some ver- it seems a bit frivolous, right? Yeah, <laughs> a bit, a bit frivolous. Yeah, sure. Maybe we should get. And I wonder if there's a market for that, like recording podcasts onto tape, and like, you know. <laughs> or onto, or, um, like, if you want to edit it, you're very yeah. welcome. To. Or like live onto phonograph. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. was a there was there was a there was a thing recording people on live onto like phonograph cylinders. Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, there was. Um, yeah, like yeah. Jack Black was. I'm Jack Black, Jack White. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're the same man. Yeah. <laughs> and you're in Liverpool? I am, yes. I'm in Liverpool about, I don't know, two blocks away from the end of Penny Lane. Yeah. So, so eagle-eared listeners may recall that Susie Gage also lived in that location. And yeah, what a coincidence. That's, that's no coincidence, as, uh, <laughs> you know, they are romantically engaged and a proud father of a new child so congratulations i don't know why i'm talking like a sort of russian (laughs) bot (laughs) (laughs) it's it's great to have you on the on the show and we sort of we we kind of i met you back when you lived in bristol and Mm. a big fan of your early folk of of your kind of early records i think i I think i got your first album before you moved to bristol so i was really excited when you did yeah, I kind of... I think I did a gig at the Louisiana and you supported. Yeah, but I think you'd I think you'd 
asked to support was what uh, I remember. Prob- yeah, probably. Sounds like I think somebody thing, said, oh, Robin knows who that is. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, that, I think that was the first time I met you. It's funny because I only moved to Bristol when I was 25, but I think out of all of the places I've been, that still feels like my... You know, that's like a hometown. Mm. Um, even though I didn't really grow up there, I did. I did my growing up there, I suppose, because probably yeah. I was quite an immature twenty-five-year-old. <laughs> but um, but you know, I still I still think of Bristol as really being home. Yeah. Um, Where are you from originally? I'm from Stafford, and nothing really happens in Stafford. But um, mm. but I think that's that's maybe that's maybe part of my musical identity is growing up in a place that doesn't have a regional identity and mm. didn't like. You know, I, I can see living in Liverpool now that escaping the shadow of the Beatles is mm. really hard. Yeah. You know, even though there's there's plenty of other Liverpool bands. Um, you know, I, I suppose it's probably the same in Manchester. It was probably the same in in London. Mm. Um, maybe in Oxford. I don't know. Yeah. But in Stafford, there isn't. You know, the Climax Blues Band are the most famous band from Stafford. <laughs> the Climax so, Blues Band. Yeah. Well, it sounds messy. So, the, well, the, the Climax Blues Band had a couple of hits in the 70s um, and were a band from, from Staffordshire. And uh, the, the, one of the, the lead guitarist of the Climax Blues Band owns a music pub in Stafford called The Grapes, mm-hmm. which is pretty much the only gig that happened in Stafford itself, which was every Monday he did a solo Pink Floyd covers set. <laughs> and he was, really, he was really good at it, but that was yeah. the only live music really happening in Stafford at right. the time. Because I, I think I remember so, meeting you, well, or before I met you, I thinking, well, you must have grown up kind of immersed in folk culture or come from a folk family. But that's not really the case, is it? You, no, well, it's not not as not like some people. Yeah. I mean, I did. My my parents met running their university folk club. Right. They they met in Manchester at university, and they ran their university folk club for for one year. They were mm. they sort of stood for the committee. Um, and that's that's how they met. Um, so I grew up going to folk festivals in the mm. summer and I grew up with records, but we didn't really have a folk club around us. Mm. We had a folk session, which, you know, which is sort of pub playing tunes that my dad ran at pub in Stafford for a long time. Um, or he ran it late in my later teens and after I'd left home. Um, mm. But we didn't grow up going to the folk club every week because there wasn't one. Yeah. So my relationship with folk music is uh, was very much based on records and imagining mm. things, uh, which I think is quite relevant to the way that I've made music in my adult life because it, you know, it's it's not it's not really based on being in a folk club playing live. It's based mm. on imagining what the studio can do, which is yeah, brings well, us onto the Beatles from yeah, yeah. But that's that's mm. what I've always loved about the way that um, you've performed and you've kind of engaged with folk culture is that you kind of have part of this thing where it's like rooted in tradition and part of this thing where it's mm. almost you're inventing your own tradition as well. You're kind of like, you, you don't need to kind of come from that culture to kind of partake in it in a way. No, um, you no. I mean, there are, there are families that have songs handed down mm. orally for generations Um you know, and there are lots of people who grew up very immersed in it. So I've got some friends whose parents ran folk clubs who always had people, you know, every Monday they had somebody staying in the spare room. So they grew up around these people. But my contact with them was, was sort of through, you know, through looking at them on a record sleeve yeah. and listening to their voices coming out of the, the record player. Yeah, um, wow. So there's a sort of there's a sort of step removed. Of, I suppose you can... You know, you can imagine what it mu- you can imagine what they're like, rather than knowing that they're 
ordinary people, mm. if, if you know what I mean. So, so maybe my relationship to these songs uh, has a bit more of a sort of fantastical thing. There is a there is a bit of a mismatch in some folk that I've always felt, which is if you're singing in traditional folk, we should say, mm. um, which is singing about you know people ma- magicians that can change into dragons and <laughs> trout and you know yeah uh, and uh, you know and Foxes, and, and witches and magical things yeah that you know um quite often folk performers are so keen to to appear normal you know they're dressed mm. just like the audience and they're very yes. like at the interval I come and I st- lean on the bar like everybody else and anybody can come and talk to me and I'm very approachable and that's a lovely thing about the folk scene but it does mean that um sometimes it diffuses that that element of the of the songs and that that's yeah. why I'm such a fan of June Tabor mm. because it's like when she's singing a song about being a witch you genuinely believe that she's a witch you don't yeah there's, you, there's the drama no, there, involved in it and the yeah I mean, you know I think you know as well as the Beatles there's a kind of Bowie influence on you and there's a kind of sense of irony and a little bit of remove about that and, and maybe that that's not something June Tabor does as such but the, the kind of idea that mm. you're kind of slightly inhabiting characters rather than these faithful retelling yeah def- definitely with the bowie thing i mean i think like everybody of our age that's filtered through 90s guitar music. like yeah. i got into bowie because of blur mm. you know bec- because someone someone said oh you know that part life it's just that's just the guitar solo from fashion by mm. David Bowie. <laughs> I was like, oh, what's what's that? Um, so it, my my journey into those things really was through the, th- you know, through refracted through nineties music. I just find that a bit similar to sort of stand up in that way, and they come from the same tradition. But that thing of sort of seeing stand ups hanging around the bar after a, a gig mm. and not being the same person as they are Definitely. on stage, even though they look exactly the same, is yeah. quite a hard thing to like perforation for people to understand mm. as like general punters yeah i was listening to your episode with jo- josh widdicombe the other day because there's mm. i've listened to most of them but there was a few that i hadn't got around to but his description of some of the way that stand-up works is very similar to the folk club scene you know that right. thing that level of that level of comedy where it's just you in a car driving around and that sort of having to deal with the audience and having to deal with the promoter and having to deal with all this stuff without a buffer around you yeah. is yeah. very similar to day-to-day folk folk stuff because that's the sort of level that you're at. You know, people all over the country who haven't met you have heard of you, but on the other hand, you're still, it's just you in a car yeah. driving up and having to deal with everything on your own. Yeah. So it, I think there are a lot of similarities. Yeah. Mm. I think there's probably a lot of similarities in the sort of people that... Um, are regulars at comedy clubs and regulars at folk clubs as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You know, they, kind of they you do get it. the purists and the obsessives and, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and the eccentrics as well. It's a safe space. Yeah. It's a safe yeah. space for eccentric people. Yeah. <laughs> I've never really made that connection between folk being such a sort of solitary existence on the road, but I guess that makes perfect sense because you're, I mean, it reminds me of sort of don't look back or whatever. Mm. where you can be Bob Dylan at his sort of peak, but you're still very much a bloke on your own on a bus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, well, I there's suppose a, that never changes. There's a fantastic film of the Watersons that's from the mid-60s. Um, it's called Travelling for a Living. I think it might be made for the BBC, but it's them in their sort of camper van driving around. <laughs> um, 
And it's like, and it's still a little bit like that. I mean, they have each other. They were siblings, and they have each other. Um, but for me, it's you know, it's just me driving around yeah. most of the time. When I've got a band, I have um, a sound engineer that Robin and I both know um, with me a lot of the time. But you know, ninety percent of the time, it's just me on my own. Yeah. Mm. Would you rather have a sort of fraternal Beatlesy relationship <laughs> where you're all in the back of a transit van? I think. I mean, I, yeah, it would be nice. <laughs> It would be nice. The way that the folk scene works doesn't really facilitate that. There mm. are a couple of folk mm. bands, I think, that have that sort of bond. So the the band Lau, um, my friends Lau, have that. You mm. know, it's it's the three of them plus their sound engineer, and it's always the four of them driving around in the van, <laughs> um, like yeah. glued to each other. Yeah, That's what I loved about the Beatles' touring years, is that even when they were stratospheric, there still really were only six people... Yeah, it's bus. crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it's Mal Evans, Brian, the four of them, and then, mm. you know, a couple of other sort of heavies. But, yeah, yeah they're way before the idea of an entourage. But yeah. even <laughs> like even when you get to Shea Stadium and Candlestick Park and stuff, it's still, you know, Mal Evans running on stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was the sound check like at Shea Stadium? I mean, like, you know, how did they go? One. How did they sign off on that? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah this will do. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah, isn't yeah. isn't that the story of why they stopped touring? Because they would it would it have been Candlestick Park, whatever the last one was. Yeah, I think Candlestick of, Park. Of um, having to, that, you know, there being a big crowd and there being no way coming off stage, and there not being an obvious way through. So they were mm. bundled into the back of a meat wagon with yeah. no, no <laughs> cushions and like no natural light, and then just sort of bouncing around in the back of this sort of meat wagon yeah. and going yeah. let's, let's not do this again <laughs> I mean the whole thing is embarrassing I mean it doesn't sort of turn ugly which has happened later on in mm. that in the decade but yeah it was just so badly thought out mm. those you know I could literally do better <laughs> I'd love to see that <laughs> it's literally they you know the, the fact that they're driven to the middle of the stadium the fact yeah. that they didn't even think yeah. to put the stage at the, the back end. of the stadium yeah. rather than in the middle. <laughs> this shows that the haste and just lack of experience. But that, but that is the thing. Had. No one had done it before. Yeah. No one had been that famous. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they had. Maybe Frank Sinatra was that famous. But he wasn't playing gigs at Shea Stadium. No. You know, um, they were inventing it all from scratch. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it is, it is crazy when you watch it. like to talk about the rubber folk album okay <laughs> there isn't there isn't much to tell to be honest um so but yeah, yeah. it's uh it was an anniversary album for rubber soul that came out on the around the 40th anniversary yeah uh with um folk musicians covering all the songs from rubber soul and some of the names we've already mentioned so june tabor does a very beautiful acapella version of in my life which I've I think it's amazing. Blotted that out, you know. I've forgotten <laughs> who else is on it. I remember Paul Brady doing "Run for Your Life." Yes, yeah. Was there, that must have been the short straw when you were divvying up the album, was it? He does it. He does it very well. But you, you know, maybe he's not connecting with the lyrics, and or maybe he is. I don't know. Watts and Carthy doing Norwegian Wood, which is very, very good. But yeah. you get star billing doing Ooh. "Drive My Car." Uh, yeah, so I think I think that was regarded as the short straw at the time, although I didn't know it. It's probably but, the hardest transition to 
to folk music, into the I folk guess. sphere, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I asked a girl what she wanted to be. She said, baby, what can you see? I want to be famous, the star of the screen. But you could do something in between. Baby, you can drive my car. Yes, I'm going to be a star. Baby, you can drive my car. Baby, I love you. It's not a great album. In my in my memory, but mm. what happened was Radio Two or the Radio Two Folk Show. The presenter at the time was Mike Harding, and his producer, I think, was a big Beatles fan, and decided that as it was the folkiest Beatles album, and I don't know if that's mm. true because well, maybe he'd not heard the White Album, um, <laughs> but they decided that it was the folkiest Beatles album. So they did a, um, a an hour long special where mm. they had folk artists covering all of rubber soul and talking about it and it was just a radio program mm. and then because they had the recordings they put it out as a record um but yeah i did drive my car i don't think anyone else wanted to do drive my car maybe <laughs> but I, I really, it's a song i've always really loved because yeah. it, it's sort of at the roots of how i discovered the beatles um, right. and my my relationship with them um which was that i didn't I didn't have any of the albums. I had a tape, a compilation tape that my dad had made when he was at university. So I didn't know what it, what era was what, and it would go drive my car and then across the universe and then, mm. um, you know, I don't know what, what else. Um, but, you know, I, I think it was one that, you know, I was probably eight or nine. So it was one that really appealed to me because it has a mm. bit that goes beep, beep in it. Yeah. it sounds like a car <laughs> and it's funny. Um but I think also that, you know, the vocal, the vocal on it is that sort of raw, rough uh, Paul McCartney vocal is yeah. one yeah, of my most, favourite noises. Your version of it, you're, you're, you're really letting rip with your McCartney. Am I right I think. in thinking that I, there's no guitar on it? I it's, think it's I probably didn't drums. play guitar on it deliberately. So it seems like you've been asked to do a folk version of Drive My Car and you're kind of making it not a folk version of drive my car yeah <laughs> probably that that would that would be my role within folk music in 2005 <laughs> yeah. um, well, slightly biting the hand that feeds kind of thing or just kind well of... i don't know i wouldn't put it like that but no. yeah I, I think that was the that was the reputation that i right. had right. for better or for, for better <laughs> or for worse but th there's there's that and then actually just before just before we started this call i remembered that the more the more recent thing is um there's a one of my regular gigs is at Shrewsbury Folk Festival, which closes the second stage. We do this sort of jam thing. Mm. And we always do a cover to end. And we covered all of the Abbey Road medley with Richard Thompson. Oh so that God. is on YouTube. Wow. Um, which is, I mean, watching it back, it sounded better on stage than, than it looks <laughs> on YouTube. But still, getting Richard Thompson to play guitar on the, the guitar solos on the end is yeah. a, pr a pr proud moment. Was he doing all three, like guitar solo bits? We no, it was terms? it was him and the guitarist in my band who was terrified. <laughs> yeah, he would and because um, I was on piano, so I wasn't taking part in this um, guitar battle. It was him, and then uh, a mandolin player called James Fagan, who right. folk people will know. Yeah, uh, so cool. But yeah, it was good, and and you know, Richard is a man of few words, <laughs> but. I think from what I from what I've heard, he really enjoyed it. Amazing. So, yeah. But I'm really interested in those things that what how people reduce a genre or a band down to a couple of elements because mm. it is the same with the Beatles. Like there is a 
there is a definite feeling that when people describe something as Beatlesy, they usually mean something that doesn't sound anything like the Beatles. It's yeah. just something that has a tambourine on it or, yeah. you know, has a sort <laughs> yeah. of upright piano that sounds a little bit like Lady Madonna. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. But, you know, that that sort of that sort of music is music I really like as well. I'm really interested in that bands that sound Beatle-y but sound nothing like the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. You know, even even ELO or somebody like that um don't really sound like the Beatles, but everybody seems to uh, 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 seems to accept that they are in a mm. Beatlesy vein. I think it's the it's the sort of making something it's it's like deliberately trying to make something sort of melodic and catchy. And anthemic, I suppose, before yeah. anthemic became a sort of indie landfill term. But, I mean, definitely in the Britpop era, there was a lot of... I mean, whole bands of Day We Caught the Train or whatever is definitely one of those... Yeah, um, I have never really thought about Cooler it that Shaker's way. entire output <laughs> is Beatlesy. Weirdly, I don't feel like the easy stick that everyone beats Oasis with is that they're very Beatlesy, like... No. I don't really get that beyond them being vocal about no. what's they, they sound more like Slade, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's the thing that it's the same thing applies to Oasis. That in people's minds, the image that comes up is it's not even based on the music; it's based on the video to All Around the World. Mm. You know, that's what people think of, like a sort of guitar on a strap up quite high, <laughs> with Noel with his sort of little round glasses on. Yeah. Um, and there's a sort of cartoon submarine in the background, and that's yeah. why they think it's Beatlesy. But but you know, Oasis, that sort of Johnny Rotney snarly thing. Although I suppose it's probably a later, it's a John Lennon solo snarly mm. voice as well. Um, sort of gets forgotten. I always thought that mm. Cooler Shaker were more Pink Floydy than Beatlesy. I've never thought of them as Beatlesy, but I think you're right. I mean, they did have a single called Hey Dude, <laughs> and the, the sort of Indian <laughs> yeah. influence. And oh stuff yeah, is I suppose. Very, uh, yeah, very Beatly. I mean, you shared yeah. a playlist with us with uh, some examples of <laughs> yeah. what you were kind of talking about. And there's one song I'd never heard before. And I think right. if you're struggling to sum, sum up like exactly what that is, it's a, that BG song called Sir Jeffrey Save yeah. the World, which is, that is, it's like almost a better Beatles parody than the Ruttles <laughs> song. Yeah, it is. Every day Saturday, feeling steadily, laughing Is that on Odessa? Which album is that on? Um, yeah, I think it's on Odessa. It's pretty early doors, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's on Horizontal. But have you oh, heard okay. Spicks and Specks? Which was, um, so Spicks and Specks was the Bee Gees' first hit, but it was when they were still in Australia. And it, right. wasn't, it wasn't a hit in Australia. So they got on a boat, they came back to England, and they got on a boat, and while they were on the boat, it hit number one in Australia. So they had the record company on, the, like, sending them a telegram, telling them to turn the boat around, and they, re- <laughs> and they refused. Wow. Um, so, and then I think it was a hit over here, but that's very Beatlesy. Yeah. I mean, it's even got some very pronounced Scouse accents going on in <laughs> yeah, it, which yeah. is quite bizarre. Yeah, there's that. And, and then there's also that track by Klaatu on there, the, the original version of... Um, calling occupants of interplanetary craft, which when it came out, they, uh, they, I think maybe it was a marketing thing, but they sent out a rumour that it was a secret Beatles album. And lots of people believed them, 
But if you listen to it, it sounds nothing like like the Beatles. But it's got this sort yeah. of Beatle quality. I think like well, like XTC are very Beatlesy, aren't they? Obviously, yeah. huge Beatles fans. But like again, mm. musically, it's this kind of super melodic thing, and it's a kind of attention to craft songwriting, which is kind of a, bit of a weird word to use for mm. kind of very songwritery. Yeah. Yeah, I, when I think also when you mean Beatley, what you mean in the vast majority of cases is McCartney. Yeah, yeah, definitely because they're definitely the sort of the Penny Lanes of the world that those yeah. people are trying to recreate with those sort of straight crotchet piano parts and yeah, maybe that that's true. thing that you were talking yeah, and about, the, and, yeah, and the those little that, that slightly sort of what he used to get away with under the umbrella of psychedelia that was just sort of nonsense rhyming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I think one of the things I liked about one of the things I liked about Blur was when I realized that the way that the Beatles use maracas is the way that Blur used sleigh bells. There's always like <laughs> sleigh bells. All of um oh, so yeah. part like modern life is rubbish. So if you think of the beginning of For Tomorrow by by Blur it goes it's yeah. which is very Bowie-y. and then yeah. there's like ching 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 on these yeah. sleigh bells in yeah. between. But it's such a recognizable noise and I just thought yeah. it was a, an amazing way to use them that, in a way that no one else yeah. had ever used them. That's true. But yeah, you're right. It is McCartney. I, I sent you that um, that uh, yeah. blonde redhead song, which is so yeah. good. I think. Did you listen to that? It's called Twenty Three, or is it called SW? I can't remember. Right. It's on the album Twenty Three, and it the, it just kind of we'll put it on a playlist afterwards. But it just kind of breaks down into this pure Sergeant Pepper moment in mm. this kind of shoegazy song, and it's such a deliberate nod. Yeah. But it's like it, I think it really carries it off because it's so unexpected. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, th- th- there's a lot of I don't know. I don't, I'm not. I don't really go in for the guilty pleasures thing because I don't think you should feel guilty about stuff you like. Mm. But you know, uh, yeah. my one of my big influences, who's the, <laughs> the least less cool side, is the crowded house thing. And, and Neil Finn is such a McCartney. Well, yeah. you know, McCartney yeah, and yeah. a bit Lennon, but you know that that yeah. Neil Finn's songs when he was like 19 when he was just joined Split Ends, are so perfectly observed, you know, I've only listened to Beatles records and I can churn these out really at high, high quality. Very underrated songwriter, yeah. I think. There's also a really good... Uh, he, he's very Lennon influenced. We might have even discussed this before, but do you, do you know the song, Not the Girl You Think You Are? Because that's yeah. pure Lennon double-tracking, yeah. like, yeah. beautiful. And it's a, side of, it's, the, it's a side of the Beatles that people don't, don't emulate usually mm. well it's and yeah. it's harder to do because it's so sincere that mm. if you try and rip off lennon it's going to sound more artificial than <laughs> if you're ripping off the sort of bells and whistles of sort of late era mccartney yeah. i've i've been searching for it for ages and i still haven't found it but there is a radio interview with andy partridge from xtc mm. where he talks about well, he he describes it himself as his trans- transition from being John Lennon to being Paul McCartney. And he does this whole spiel about... Bit arrogant. <laughs> Mum, Dad, I've got something to tell you. I know you thought I was John Lennon, but I want to knit my own jumpers and and raise sheep on a Scottish farm and make my own yoghurt. I'm Paul McCartney now. This is who I am, and you should accept it. Oh, fair but, play. But, yeah, I mean, he, he I think... 
I think he made a conscious switch one day. Like, mm. stop pretending to be angry. You're a <laughs> you're well, a fairly like, cheery middle class boy. That's a yeah. I, that's. I suppose that's the thing. It's kind of easier to emulate Lennon because the characteristics of Lennon are maybe more production style things, as in the voice. Yeah, burying the voice. Whereas trademark McCartney are those meandering melodies, really, which are yeah. much harder to emulate. You know, but maybe and, that's. A, Broad, you know, n- yeah. n- not not you know, do, not taking anything away from John Lennon, but you know, who can sing like Paul McCartney? Yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. like it's it's hard. It's mm. really really hard. It's yeah. a high level of performance. Yeah, you know, mm. ability on guitar and bass and singing and songwriting all at once. Yeah, so who can yeah. do that? This this might be a good segue into kind of what you kind of emailed about wanting to discuss which is the <laughs> McCartney Elvis Costello demos in the 80s. Yeah. And mm. McCartney's voice. Well, I'm there. really I'm really fascinated with m- how McCartney um as uh, you know every maybe every decade he has a go at working with somebody else who will actually answer back. Mm. If you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, that's true. So, so you got Costello mm. 80s Jeff Lynne and then Nigel well, Godrich. I was I was thinking, yeah, Rihanna. Nigel Godrich Rihanna. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Rihanna, yeah. 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 But Kanye you know, I, just I ignoring think... him in the studio. That was quite a nice story. You know, everything you <laughs> <laughs> everything you read about McCartney is like he's so aggressively nice to people, but you know I, who was it who had that quote about like I think it was maybe Denny Lane from Wings about mm. he's never seen anybody as good as he as good at hiding their true feelings as Paul McCartney. Yeah, and maybe yeah. when you get that famous when you're 22, that's yeah. what this you learn to do. Yeah, this comes up a lot. Yeah, his, yeah. his perfecting his ob- obfuscation. Yeah, that's what I found fascinating about the these demos. So you can listen to the demos on the Flowers in the Dirt reissue that came out a few years ago, mm. which are demos Elvis Costello and Paul McCartney wrote together. And what I find interesting is they're kind of. It feels like they're kind of trying to kind of show off in front of each other and they're yeah. kind of trying mm. to out show outclass each other and for me what i i love about it is for, for me i think jacks disagrees but like i think they they sound much more like elvis costello songs than they sound like paul mccartney songs but paul think? mccartney mm. is kind of really pushing his kind of stamp on them by yeah. really singing like beautifully and kind of really aggressively like Elvis Costello maybe said, that's true he's kind of almost mm. channeling that kind of I'm down little Richard yeah style. well that song the lovers that never were yeah. definitely I mean mm. that's extraordinary I mean the whole thing is I remember when this came out and I sort of gave it a brief listen and probably not giving it the attention it deserved due to just general sort of spotification of my listening habits. <laughs> but I kind of sort of dismissed it because I had read that this was a sort of you know, a, um, an attempt at a new partnership that didn't really work and it ended up as some later album tracks. And, yeah, you're definitely, like, Paul McCartney's post-solo career, in a way, is constantly trying to find, like, rekindle some sort mm. of partnership that's as effective as Lennon McCartney. But he obviously, obviously doesn't like futile. it. Mm. Exactly, he doesn't, and you can hear him. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Robin, I kind of disagree. I think there are some songs that sound more mccartney and some that sound very costello i think what's interesting is there's not much in between but 
you're right in the, the way that they're recorded. I mean, it sounds, especially his sort of vocal quality is that, I think that he recorded a lot of it, and especially that that song in particular, which is incredible. And I knew it off um, off the ground, yeah. where it's got this really. I mean, never really gave it a second thought because it's sort of drenched in this Jeff Linney production, which isn't actually Jeff Lynn. I thought it was until this morning. But that lovers that never were. He's literally he's standing over um, Elvis Costello's shoulder, who's playing the piano, singing into the same mic, yeah. and it sounds exactly like that. And he's sort of really straining to hit notes that are quite well within his range as well, which is really interesting. Well, it's the uh, maybe I'm amazed vocal sound. Yeah, yeah, but but he can. But there are only like top A's, right? Which is firmly within the McCartney wheelhouse. Yeah. So it gives the impression that they've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe. So they've been they've been really putting in the hard graft. I have always. Right when when people dis, when people talk about Lennon and McCartney, it's it's quite often that one-upmanship of you know pulling things out the bag to try and get like to try and impress your mate, and that's what he's been missing this whole time. And mm. I think he's it it feels to me as an observer that McCartney's been searching for that, but when he gets it, he doesn't like it. Yes. So he doesn't like mm. people telling him. There's yeah. a story about um, Steve Lipson who was. Uh, worked a lot with Trevor Horn. So I, I can't remember what thing that he produced in the mid-80s, but I think there was a bit of that, that Steve Lipson had been brought in as sort of co-producer on this. And and Paul, McCart- Paul said, you know, what do you think of the song, lads? And Steve Lipson said, well, I, don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think the chorus isn't one of, one of your best. And then this tumbleweed goes to the studio as all of <laughs> Paul's staff go, you say that <laughs> but he but he said that it was like no one had no one had told him that for a decade right yeah so he went oh well i suppose i'll go upstairs and write a new one then and then came back half an hour later and it was better and mm. everybody agreed it was better but you know yeah. uh, you can you really feel that with the nigel godrich with chaos and creation as well because i think that that's um I, i'm a really big fan of that record i got back into yeah. it about six months ago you know over over lockdown um and but I, 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 from reading interviews at the time, I don't think Paul liked it. Mm. And maybe it's just because he just doesn't like being told it's not good enough. Mm. And there is a lot of Paul McCartney's, especially lyrically, that, that is just sort of, you know, somebody could have said, I think you can make that a bit better. <laughs> yeah. And I think with the, especially with that Costello relationship, because it's, it does definitely feel like something that's put together on paper rather than because of like a spark in them meeting each other because yeah, you know, he is pretty Lennon-esque, he's Liverpudlian, he's yeah. on this hot mm. streak, he's a proper craftsman, but it's a bit like, it reminds me a bit like when someone breaks up with someone and you meet them and they've got a new partner who's yeah. really like the old one, but <laughs> yeah. just like, right. yeah. but no one really sees it apart from them. Yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah. 
Or like Alan Partridge moving into his house and it's exactly the same as his static. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> from what I understand, um, uh, from what I understand, it was Paul McCartney's manager who put them together. But I, I think, I, I from yeah, from what I've heard, Paul McCartney hasn't spoken to Nigel Godrich again, apart right. from maybe to do mm. the Live Aid 20 single. Do you remember that? Well, uh, when I... they, did, they redid Live Aid... And so, you know, the original... I do remember it, because I remember Tom York being in it, yeah, playing the piano. the original... Like, what the, the fuck are you doing? Because <laughs> <laughs> Nigel Godrich produced Live Aid 20 with a rap by Dizzy Rascal on it. Oh, um, yeah, I do And the house, band, the house band was Tom York on piano, Paul McCartney on bass, and Danny Goffey from Supergrass on drums. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of sort of super bands, weirdly, going on from those, is that so a lot of those songs just made it on to... Um, you, you know, the subsequent McCartney and Costello records, but that um, Veronica, yeah. which is on Spike, oh, which is Spike. a... So I'm weirdly, when you emailed about that, I'm going through a big sort of phase of reassessing a lot of 80s Costello, which yeah. I've always loved. Like, King of America is one of my top 20 favourite albums Spike ever. is a big deal for me, partly because, partly because of Tramp the Dirt Down, because it's got that sort of Irish folk thing... But I think, but Spike meant a lot to me. Um, I don't know, a, f- a few years ago, of, about what music you make when you're in your mid to late thirties. Like right, somebody, yeah. so uh, you know, I, I take a, <laughs> I took, you know, I take a lot of reassurance from people who are really just hitting their stride when they're that, yeah. which is, but yeah. that is one, that's one of the big folk things that you can be. Um, artists are allowed to keep getting better until they're into their seventies, eighties. You know, the mm. the narrative with folk folk singers quite often is that they're they're the best they've ever been when they're in mm. their eighties. You know, mm. like 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 people talk about Shirley Collins, mm. um, and you know, which gives me a bit of hope at the age of four, <laughs> yeah. nearly forty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah I, so Spike Spike was a big deal for me because it's like this guy that's so talented but has sort of focused all of his energy on almost being a cartoon character. Yeah. Just sort of goes, oh, I'm capable of all of this as well. And the Juliet Letters as well has been a big record for me just because of where I've come from. Um, I think they massively suffer from terrible record covers. Yeah. Because I've Spike, seen them Spike a is lot. In, yeah, because I always see them in secondhand record shops where I spend a significant <laughs> amount of my time. And they all just look like... You know, they could be sort of shitty bootlegs because the yeah. covers are so horrible. But on that, on Veronica, so it can't have been that bad because Paul McCartney plays bass yeah. on the studio version. But that band yeah. is, so it's, it's T-Bone Bennett who yeah. produced the previous ones, Elvis Costello, Paul McCartney, Chrissy Hines on backing vocals and Pete Thomas, is it, from the Attractions yeah. on drums? It's like... The most nutty lineup yeah. of yeah. musicians on that album. But there's the song Pads, Paws and Claws as well, which is from those writing sessions. Yeah. Which is probably the worst song that they Not wrote. Not so great. <laughs> but it's what? Two two weekends that they wrote I think it's twelve songs that yeah. they wrote in really? like a in a few hours. Yeah. And some of some of the ones that um weren't on Costello or McCartney solo things. Um, the, the, so there's that sort of Everly Brothers. Is it called Twenty Fine Fingers? Mm. That's yeah, like a. Yeah. That's like them going. That's hey, on, to, um, you know, off the ground as well. I think. Oh, is it on the off the ground? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. But I, I think that I mean that's incredible that they wrote those songs so quickly. But I, for me, it's like the lyrics are really much more Costello's. Yeah. Well, 
there was oh, an no, Elvis sure. Costello BBC4 documentary that Paul was in. So that was what I was going to say. I don't think Paul has spoken to Nigel Godrich since, but mm. I, he's still mates with Elvis, right. from what I understand. But he's in this Elvis Costello documentary, and he said, we got together and it was really good. He's good at the words, is Elvis. <laughs> he's, he's good with the words. And you think... That's that's quite a compliment from Paul McCartney, but it's also yeah. quite an understatement. <laughs> but I do think this is... I love that bit in... This is, again, the Adam Buxton podcast around Christmas where Paul McCartney was talking about how he went to see Dylan and obviously yeah. Dylan didn't do any famous songs and like was yeah. totally doing the usual Dylan thing and Paul McCartney's reaction was like, I wish I could be more like that. Mm. And it's like, you're Paul, you're Paul McCartney, mate. You know, but Just like a bare-faced lie. No, but like, I do think like there is that thing where but he it's didn't like, used he's, to. I think he's kind of like a Zelig character, isn't he? So like, when he's in a room with Elvis Costello, he'll kind of like match that mood. Yeah, you know? but but from but also there's that story that um, it was during that session that Elvis went, what whatever what happened to that Hofner bass he used to play? Mm. You should you should start playing that again. And he got it out of storage and got it restored. And then, so I, I think it's also responsible for that change from the late 80s into the sort of early 90s where he started doing Beatles songs at mm. gigs again and he yeah. started mm. being that guy and yeah. it's definitely the right choice so I mean one of the best gigs I've ever seen was I was at the McCartney where are the of you at McCartney at um, Glastonbury in 2005 no. no. 4-5 when he did his sort of greatest hits Saturday Night Headline thing and it was just mm. such a well chosen set but it's because he did you know, he did quite a bit of Wings stuff. He did all the Beatles ones that you want him to, to do. You know, Live and Let Die yeah. was the second song, I think. <laughs> um, you know, it, he's just got the right idea about it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. get, yeah, when you, when you go and see, any, if you've seen him, in, basically since that point, he's well aware that this is, you know, yeah. very much a show. And I think he does enjoy it. You, you can see it on his face that he's, yeah. he's not going through the motions there. no. no. No, and he they look those songs mean to a lot to him still, which is yeah, pretty amazing. But I think when you reach your sort of as well when your voice kind of starts to yeah. go, then you sort of have to lean back a bit more on on hits as well. I was worried about Glastonbury um, because his voice is not what it was in two thousand and five. Mm. Um, no, it it went. I saw him in twenty ten, and yeah. that was the last time. It was proper little Richard McCartney. Mm. On record, it sounds great because he sort of lent into the fragility of it. Yeah. Bit. yeah. But, um, yeah, live, it's it's harder. <laughs> the first time I noticed it was the 2012 Olympic cl- op- yeah. opening, closing ceremony, whichever one he did. Yeah. Opening, he did. Uh, where hey it was like, oh, yeah, he can't sing Hey Jude that well anymore, which is a shame. I mean, that's a bloody good run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, if I'm hitting top Bs in my sort of late 70s, I'll be pretty yeah. happy. I wondered if we could talk about Bright Phoebus, the folk album, yeah. um, because it's interesting because it's one of the, it's one of these albums that's like called the Sergeant Pepper of the folk world, but only sort of in reviews where people say it's called that. Like I can't find anyone who actually said that. People only say that it said that. Kind of yeah, thing. I think I think. Where that comes from is um, just as I said earlier on about the early folk revival was based on this idea of sort of illiterate peasants singing their music that's unaffected by modernity. Yeah. Um, there are some 
aspects of the folk revival are based on the idea that it's somehow sort of separatist music. And I know amongst my dad's generation, there were people who had got into folk music as a reaction against other stuff. Yeah. So there's that sort of folk purist thing comes from feeling like you want to be into music that's somehow deeper and more worthy than yeah. shawaddy waddy, you know? Mm. Um, so I think everybody wants their, everyone wants certain folk artists to be like unaware of pop music mm. so i think what that comes from is like isn't it amazing that the you know that, that they see bright phoebus as these people that have never heard pop music before sort yeah. of accidentally creating this studio-based psychedelic masterpiece yeah um whereas actually it wasn't quite like that i don't no. think I, th I think so bright phoebus is an album by mike and lal waterson so the the watersons were a vocal harmony group uh, like a one of the main British folk acts between 1962-ish, and I think they broke up in 68, I guess. I've probably got that wrong. But they were um, two sisters and a brother and their cousin, who was called John Harrison. And they, when they split up, uh, Norma Watson, who is Martin Carthy's wife now and the mother of Eliza Carthy, went off to the West Indies to be a DJ. And <laughs> Mike became a paint, painter and decorator, I think Lau might have been a graphic designer, but they got, but, you know, they got ordinary jobs, basically. Mm. So they had been known for being a traditional music vocal harmony group. And um, but Mike, Mike and Lal had independently been writing these sort of slightly psychedelic songs. Mm. And somebody, I think it might be Ashley Hutchings from from Fairport Convention. Uh, heard them and sort of talked them into recording a record. Mm. So I don't think it was ever intended to be played live. And because of that, they got all of their mates in. And it's a rhythm section that was from Fairport Convention of the time. So Dave Mattox on drums, who's played with Paul McCartney since, uh, Ashley on bass, Richard Thompson on guitar, uh, Martin Carthy played acoustic guitar on it. And then various people like this guy, Bob Davenport, who was a singer from the Northeast, who was quite a big sort of folk club guy at the time um and they you know recorded these really weird songs in the basement yeah. of cecil sharp house in camden oh is that where it was recorded it was recorded yeah there's a there's a story about there's a guy who is uncredited on it because he'd come it was the postman came, right yes yeah and they'd said this, yeah. we're doing some chorus vocals come and join in and they didn't get his name <laughs> so there there are people on it but um also, this is how... So I said that Norma Watson is uh, now married to Martin Carthy. I think she had arrived back and been given this song, which is called Red Wine Promises, to mm. sing. And her and Martin were recording it alone in the studio, and that's how they got together. Yeah. So I think that's how Eliza's parents sort of started going out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, what year did Bright Phoebus come out? Probably early 70s. Yeah. yeah. Um, that would be about right. So that they'd been, you know, they'd had ordinary jobs for three or four years. Um, and I know Lal Waterson was a big Queen fan. She mm. really liked Queen and she really liked Freddie, Freddie Mercury. Yeah. But she also wrote a, a kind of tribute song after Freddie's death, which was kind of oh, having a probably. go at a Sun journalist for right. a very homophobic yeah. article he wrote about. Freddie. Yeah, that, that would be right. Mm. But yeah, the the idea of it as the sort of Sergeant Pepper, I think, comes from the psychedelia, and it comes from this, this, this idea that they'd accidentally recreated something. They'd mm. accidentally made this, you know, like a sort of outsider art, as if they're Daniel Johnson or 
somebody yeah. when actually they were just people who liked pop music yes. that happened to be folk artists in a previous life. Yeah, that's so fascinating because I mean, we I just watched the the Daniel Johnson film, da The Devil and Daniel Johnston. He also loved playing at one stage and wanted to be a successful. He's, you know, there was no he. There was a sense that he was playing uh he he did want to do this it wasn't like someone had pushed him on the stage you know he was a he had his own agency is what i mean yeah yeah you know and he was a part of that kind of scene folk folk singers in uh austin was it austin i can't remember mm. but um you know and so, yeah so that i mean maybe similar thing with bright fevers that yeah like people thought this has come from nowhere but it obviously yeah. hadn't come from nowhere yeah <laughs> and but i think the great it taps about... into how people want to think about folk music quite often, I think, as well. That they want to, they want it to be a separatist. You know, they want it to be unaffected by pop music because that's the thing that's appealing. Yeah. I mean, it even goes into um, that. You know, there is a strand of folk music that, where the more rough and abrasive it sounds, um, and the more sort of wire magazine it sounds, yeah. the more people think it's the real thing, as opposed yes. to yeah. people who are actually trying. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. but not, not which isn't to say that. Um, Low, like rough abrasive sounding folk musicians aren't trying to sound rough rough and abrasive mm. but i think one you know one group is regarded as sounding too contrived and one is like authentic and the real thing yeah. rather than both being we are trying to make this sound yeah of course and this is yeah. deliberate and, and yeah. I, I am in control of this sound that i'm making yes yeah there is a big thing in folk music about singing in your own voice as well which is mm. in practical terms is usually about regional accents in folk and not singing in a sort of pan you know uh, mid-atlantic-y mm. rock and roll inspired way but a lot of that is a far more you know curated voices mike waterson that wasn't his natural accent he'd curated a way of sounding mm. like that there's a guy called peter bellamy that people quite often hold up as the thing which is an incredibly contrived voice yeah. which isn't a bad thing you know it, it really yeah. really worked but it's certainly not that thing of like, uh, you know, people that have never heard rock and roll just singing in their ordinary accents, which mm. is, I think, what people would like folk music to be sometimes. Yeah. But I, I think, and the, 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 I mean, the wonderful thing about Bright Phoebus is I think that there is that thing where sometimes you do think folk music is something quite safe uh, and maybe, you know, something like which, your yeah. parents would enjoy. You know, I don't know, how I, but like Bright Phoebus, is, there's something so deeply unsettling about it. And so yeah. Lal Waterson's voice is so kind of aggressive and like so kind of, I want to say kind of unschooled, but maybe that's not the right word. But like, kind It's of... only just occurred to me, but I suppose the other, the other reason it's like Sgt. Pepper mm. is if you disregarded like George's songs or, you know, with a little help from my friends, you've got this clash between two people who are sort of, diverging in the in styles mm. so lal's songs are very weird chords and very mm. weird phrase lengths and yes. stuff and um you know and and don't sound like the way other people would use harmony no. and mike's songs are very sing a lot like so yeah. the song bright phoebus is a mike song and right. the song red wine promises is a lal song yeah and maybe there's that sort of john and paul uh duality as well but and also on a more kind of literal comparison i think you can hear paul in lal's phrasing i think melodically in like okay. winifer winifer odd. odd 
yeah. think that's really sounds like a McCartney kind of style song. I mean, it's very unusual kind of. She was a very person. natural m- melodicist. Mm. But from my understanding, the reason Martin was on that is because Martin had because um, she couldn't play any instruments, so she'd asked him around to make sense of these melodies that she was singing. <laughs> So, I, I mean, I think she did choose the chords and everything, but it was Martin playing a chord and going, do you mean that one? Do you mean this one? What's the, what, which is the one that you're hearing? Because yeah. Martin is very patient like that. Even to this day, that's wow. what he's like. Yeah. He's very sort of methodical and patient with people. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is what I love about Bright Phoebus is this idea that, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you chose the Costello McCartney songs to talk mm. about, which I think is really interesting because in those demos they're both singing to be heard and which is a very yeah. folk thing the the words are very clear and it's very enunciated and costello's got a very kind of declamatory voice and what i think what i really like about lal waterson is that she's kind of leaning into this slightly more submerged thing you know where mm. it's more mysterious and it's darker and weirder you know <laughs> like what's going on in winner for odds someone picks up a lucky trinket and then gets run over by a car it's like yeah. such a weird story yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i know uh, um norma watson is a big edith pf fan i think mm. that's what norma has been trying to sort of that's the th- the mold she's been trying to grow mm. into yeah. over the last you know probably 30 years 20 20 20 years at least um you know they they want to be sort of that style of shantus yes yeah. <laughs> is that the right yeah. word yeah but you know what i mean like tor- <laughs> yeah. torch singer um yeah. that sort of you know um holding holding court yeah, yeah. which is that there is a which is very big in the sort of traveler folk singing community because a lot of where there is a still there's still real thriving uh traditional song tradition in the uk mm. is is in the traveler community yeah and which oh, Watersons were kind of uh, yeah, kind of semi-related to is that right? Yeah, um, yes. I think the I think uh, I think Lal and Norma and Mike's grandmother might have been mm. a traveller, mm. but there is a there is a, a traveller singer who was a lot of songs were collected from called Queen Caroline Hughes, who had this thing of like. Well, this is this is from Norma, but her she used to tell people in performances like I've travelled all over the world, and actually she'd never been outside Dorset. <laughs> she'd only travelled as far as the edges of the county. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it was that thing of like, you know, she, she was called Queen Caroline Hughes for a reason. Mm. That that it's like that sort of I'm the Queen of the Travellers. Yeah. So I, I think that style of performing is really filtered into the into the Watersons. But yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really fascinating album. The way it was made is a very sort of fascinating thing because they were in the basement of Cecil Sharp House with some real to real recorders. Yeah, and it's had a very unfortunate release history as well, hasn't it? Because it's kind of re released yeah. and then pulled. Which yeah, no, well, it's not it's not Spotify. There is a there is a covers version of it from the nineties, which is called Shining Bright, which they yeah. did. Um, with some of the original people just trying to re-record it. But yeah, there, there was a, a, a folk record label called, well, two, called Leader and Trailer. So one was for traditional songs, one was for what they called revival songs, but still re- traditional songs, but done in a newer style. And they were run by a guy called Bill Leader, who produced uh, mm. Bright Phoebus. And that whole catalogue was bought up by... Um, was was brought up by one of the former distributors for, for them, who then just sort of sat on them, like yeah. would refuse to release them, mm. and was a sort of deeply weird man from all 
I'm, I'm trying not to get sued because he was also no. very litigious. Um, <laughs> but his her, his children own the label now and yeah. um, also won't let it be released. It's but there's shame, no one really it? knows why. But uh, I mean, I know some of the inside stuff, mm. but not very much because, you know, uh, some of my older friends like had records on that label that uh, have been sort of sitting in limbo, but it includes, you know, Lyle Wilson died of cancer in the early nineties and really needed money at that point. And they refused to release it. Um, Nick Jones had a career ending car accident in 1982 and wasn't able to perform live. And all of, you know, his entire back catalog apart from one record were, um, were locked up in this, dispute and you know and he's lived since 1982 like in with no money because and he's one of the greatest British folk performers that there's ever been the greatest folk guitarist in in my opinion well uh, yeah I I think so too but um but yeah it's it's it there's a lot of bits of folk history because it's it's where um it's the original cottage industry Mm. in a lot of ways you know uh, it's all funded by enthusiasts and it's all enthusiasts doing it. And and I think, as I said earlier, like comedy clubs, sometimes these places are a safe place for eccentrics. Yeah. <laughs> Pe- people who don't have a place, don't have a, a social life outside of this. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's, it's a weird. place where eccentricity is, is allowed. And, <laughs> um, but you know, that, cuts both ways it, it yeah. both means there are some deeply weird people involved and it also means it's great that they have a place yeah. they can go and have a social <laughs> are you sure you want this to go out Jim <laughs> damaging for your well I don't audience. I don't think anybody like I don't think I think everybody would agree with that and I'm and also I'm not saying this is a bad thing no I think it's you know it's it's part of the folk scene that I grew up in yeah I mean I remember going to see Cara Dillon in St George's uh, about 2003 or four it was a really good gig, and and at the end, like someone at the back shouted, like because they were using amps, yeah, and it wasn't completely acoustic and unplugged. It's like, come on, man! Like... Yeah, I had a <laughs> there was a gig where I did that I did at Sidmouth Folk Festival where a woman walked out clutching her ears, screaming, right? Um, because screaming. I had an because I had an electric guitar, but what she didn't realise is I'd spent the whole song uh, fiddling with the amp because I didn't know why my electric guitar wasn't on. So she saw me like with an electric guitar, like yeah. going like this, and then touching all of the knobs, and she was, went out clutching her ears for an entirely wow. silent electric guitar that shocked her. But that sort of thing happens far less than you know. Again, yeah. that's a really good angle for you know. So so that that article has been written about me so many times of outraging the purists, mm. and it's just not that's not really the way it works. You know, no. generally people are really supportive, and yeah, yeah, yeah. or certainly to your face, they're really supportive. Well, that's the thing that I think is from my experience of going to folk gigs is that it is an incredibly, it has this reputation of obviously like the Judas thing, but it Mm. isn't like that. And it is very welcoming. And that's kind of, I suppose, why why the Beatles would come into it is like the idea that the Beatles songs have kind of entered the folk vocabulary in a way, you know? Yeah, I think, I think they have. And, and the way that folk singer song, singer songwriter, folk-based singer-songwriter stuff is definitely very informed by that and probably mm. as jack says like it's a it's a mccartney thing more than a lennon thing yeah but do, do you know of the, do you know of steve tilston the songwriter he's written loads of sort of folk club standards uh mm. and he's from liverpool but again mm. he was involved in that bristol troubadour scene okay yeah. he lived in bristol for, for a time but he was interviewed in 
I don't know what magazine, like Cream or one of those mm. sort of early 70s magazines. And he gave an interview, when he was 21, and he gave an interview saying, I'd hate to become famous because it always ruin- it always goes to people's heads and it ruins it. Um, and he only found out a few years ago that John Lennon had written a letter to him to say, it's not like that, like to give him some advice, basically. Wow. Like, don't don't be afraid of being famous because mm. you don't have to turn out like that. And not all of us have turned out like that. And, you know, um, and the letter was <laughs> intercepted and it was sold at auction. So he spotted, I think the story is that he spotted it. He sp- like he read the thing of like um, John Lennon letter goes up for sale and sells for two million pounds. And then at the top it says, dear Steve Tilston. <laughs> And um and he'd never he'd mm. never got the letter. Oh my god, that's a but, great um, story. <laughs> but yeah, it, th- th- there is a there is a type of um, f- very folk club sing along songwriting which is very Beatlesy influenced. Mm. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, I sort of feel like the same for our generation, like radio, the the position that Radiohead occupy for our generation, which is pretty much everybody likes Radiohead. Yeah. Uh, apart from people who don't like Radiohead uh, as a uh, you know, as a, as a point of principle. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. I yeah. think, you know... The drunker I get, the less I like Radiohead, if I'm feeling argumentative. <laughs> and the more I like Oasis. <laughs> <in terms of>, sorry. <laughs> yeah, in folk music, there are some people who are, like, really into the Rolling Stones or whatever, yeah. but nearly everybody quite likes the Beatles. I think they're yeah. a safe thing, like, yeah. covering... Well, I think we were, you know, we were talking about a similar way to the way that kind of standards have been adopted into jazz like the pianist yeah Bart meldau yeah who does a great version of martha my dear and mm. you know and and does radiohead songs and nick drake songs and and you know i, th- I think it's these kind of they they begin to become standards don't they and like i love the way that you can do something interesting with martha my dear which seems like such a kind of perfect pop song but then to kind of deconstruct it I do think that's that is the thing of about the Beatles that um the the role they really played is that is in, incorporating sort of musicals and music hall and jazz yeah. standardy sensibilities yeah. and this is all from McCartney mm. it's like you know the till there was you from the music mm. man sort mm. of thing this this very um this very sort of white western way of using harmony Mm. And, and fusing it with that Chuck Berry rock and roll yeah. thing, yeah. like that—that's their contribution to popular music. It's putting—it's putting the uh, the Gershwin back into <laughs> rock and roll a little bit. It's—it's yeah, it's yeah. that, that's the point when it it, it enters in the vocabulary again. Yeah. So you know, writing yesterday, mm. or even or like um, for no one maybe, mm. and certainly you know here there and everywhere. Here there and everywhere is like a Cole Porter song. Mm, and you know yeah. McCartney could do that when he was in his early twenties, yeah. and maybe that's because of his dad and because yeah. of the music he'd. Be- but then again, I suppose the same is probably. I mean, he gets the benefit of being post Beatles, but um, Elvis Costello's dad obviously sang jazz standards with the mm. Joe Loss Orchestra every night. Mm. Yeah. I think his mum did as well. I think the story is that mm. his mum stood in in rehearsals but never performed publicly. But I think his mum was a sort of accomplished yeah. jazz singer as well because she died only a couple of months ago and there's definitely something in that sort of celtic especially irish liverpudlian kind of yeah something magical was happening there I and mean, in the way that people were sort of yeah 
reproducing music and just... well for, for for a very english folk artist because you know most of the music i play is specific, specifically from england liverpool is quite a weird place to to be because so few people consider themselves English mm, like it's the yeah. sort of people's republic of Liverpool thing yeah. and it's got far more of an Irish diaspora yeah and folk music mm. from here is far more Irish Jim, we're coming to the end. Thank you so much for your time. We'll just leave you with one uh, last thing, which is our stock question. Do you have a controversial Beatles opinion? I was trying to think about this earlier. I'm not sure I have an opinion that is particularly controversial. I mean, I, I did touch on my in, entry point to the Beatles was a tape where all of the songs were jumbled up. And maybe so maybe it's that the, the best Beatles album is truly the best of the Beatles. <laughs> that, that, that really is that, that yeah, really Alan is true. Right. I mean, maybe I, I'm not a White Album person, so maybe that's slightly right. controversial with Robin. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I suppose because you alluded to it being the most folk-infused Beatles album, so I suppose that's yeah, slightly well, surprising. But what is it that you don't that doesn't click with you? I don't know. I, I think I think it's I think it's songs that don't feel fully realised. Yeah, I mean, maybe that would be one of my things. Maybe that thing we were saying about reducing de- the Beatles down to a few recognisable elements. Um, I think when I picture the Beatles, maybe it's sort of revolver that I'm thinking of. It's, you know, it's really fully realised songs and mm. it's and it's sort of short and snappy and not too long. I think the, the White, you know, it's a really cliched thing to say. The White Album would have been a really great single album. But yeah, it's, it's revolver that I think is the quintessential Beatles for me. That's what that's the thing that I relate to. Mm. I mean, I, mm. I think Sgt. Pepper is probably the best album but what I think of as the Beatles is is that sort of revolvery thing. I think the White Album it, it, it is kind of like a sketchbook, incredible sketches. You know, it's a bit like what like flicking through those Picasso sketches, which is all all incredible. But sometimes you want to see the hits. Yeah, and, and in in some ways they did they did the idea a lot better with Abbey Road, which is take all of the bits of songs and jam them together in a in a medley, mm. like that that's that would have been a better way to do some sort of half-assed songs. <laughs> I completely I completely sympathise with the um, popular argument of that's what's brilliant about the White Album. But I think mm. if the White Album in that state didn't exist and you knew it as a perfect 14-track album yeah, with a sort of load of B-sides for yeah. singles that were incredible, then... Yeah, probably would rather have it that way. Is my what and and sort of when the when anthology came out, you'd go, "Have you heard that song, Glass Onion? (laughs) (laughs) What amazing lyrics! Yeah, it's so good. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder what would have happened if the versions of Let It Be came out in a different order. Yeah, you know, if Paul had have had his way and it would have sounded like that all along. Mm. Because I I do. I mean, I think I've heard you talking about this on the podcast before, but I really like the Let It Be Naked. Yeah. Um, mm. it, but having grown up with, you know, the long and winding road with those strings on it, I think I'd never really thought that it sounded wrong. But mm. the version of, the, as Paul wanted it, is just so revelatory that... Yeah. Um, I think the reason with that album, the thing for me with that album, is the only one that doesn't sound like a big leap forward, which is right. the disappointment. Yeah. So I think whenever, however it had come out, like that, 
the artistic decision behind the album was like we're going to take a step back from the studio it's all in the room sure like i love let it be but if you look at the progression between every beatles album they're all giant leaps (laughs) and however well the get back project could have gone it's there still would have been something slightly retro Mm. about them going back to that is it controversial to say that I think Magical Mystery Tour album is really good and the film isn't? No, that comes up quite a lot. And, and in mm. fact, I was thinking about this, like, um, yeah, someone else said that... I think it was Rob Chapman on Twitter said that the best Beatles album is the Magical Mystery Tour kind of CD that came Pound out of the EPs Pound. and, and yeah. Strawberry Fields. I think people maybe think less of it because of the film. Yeah. But like, and maybe because it's the the seeds of that sort of resenting McCartney for writing "Your Mother Should Know" or whatever. But I think it's Jack I, likes I, 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 love I, it. I love it. I really <laughs> like it. But the song "Magical Mystery Tour" is brilliant as well. Yes, mm. it is. I absolutely love the song "Magical Mystery Tour." Do you know why? Because of that little piano right. thing at the end, which is so weird mm. and spooky. Yeah, the, what the little se- separate section. Yeah, that beautiful. Bill. Yeah, it's amazing. I think it's just my thing is just not. It's not an album. I don't think right. of it as an album, so I no. wouldn't wouldn't occur to me to judge it. I mean, having that CD, I remember that was the. I would recommend that to someone who did, hadn't didn't have any Beatles album, like get the Magical Mystery Tour CD because it's got right. It's you know it's mm. the best collection of songs. Got kind That was Jim Murray's Personal Beatles, uh, another really fascinating one. Um, it's definitely going to be one with a, a quite heavy playlist, so uh, yeah. if you go onto our social media, you can see the playlist that we've been updating for this series. We're not doing one for every episode anymore, because I couldn't be bothered, <laughs> but uh, we'll stick a load of stuff on there. Yeah, we've got a Spotify playlist which covers a lot of the songs we mention in this series, and last series, actually, so it's covers and songs we think are Beatles-influenced and various solo things. Something I'm really into at the moment, actually, which we didn't mention on the episode, but Galaxy 500's cover of Isn't It a Pity is... Oh, nice. uh, I think it's very, very, very good. Yeah. And you <laughs> hadn't heard the Nina Simone one, either. No, no, that, that's fantastic. That's 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 on the playlist, yeah. too. She can really cover the hell out of Oh, my God, it's <laughs> incredible. There's a bit of her doing Revolution as well in the recent... Um, Summer of Soul film oh, that yeah. we talked about. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's brilliant. Um, yeah, and I think, isn't it a pity, just kind of, it really lends itself to covers because it's so simple. And like, mm. you know, Galaxy 500 changed the chords, but it just it just works. Yeah. It's so good. So get involved with that uh, Spotify playlist. And we'll be back next week with uh, a really good episode with Christine Feldman Barrett, who is a American academic who's written a really fascinating book called A Women's History of the Beatles, which is, you know, depressingly uncharted territory. Mm. It was a, yeah, it was, it's a great book and it was such a good chat because it just seemed to go in lots of cool directions, but she's so interested in like the fan demographic and, and just kind of really mm. focusing on how important the female fan, fan demographic was for the Beatles and how kind of energizing it was for that generation. It was mm. it was really really interesting. She's so cool, and she's very interested in a lot of the stuff we talk about as well on the show, which is lots of nineties indie, basically. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But yeah, it was great, and lot. T- we chatted a bit about Klaus Vormann's bass playing as well, which is fun. 
yeah. She grew up in Seattle, sort of bang on, bang on the right time to yeah. grow up in Seattle. So yeah, there yeah. were a few sort of sighs of jealousy from, uh, yeah. from us. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that, that'll be there next Tuesday. If you want to hear an extended version of that and every other episode, you can go to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles, where you will also find a couple of bonus episodes, uh, the one with Ellis James at Abbey Road and uh, Jack and Robin's Personal Beatles Volume 2, with lots more exciting ones to come. We'll be back next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to the show as ever. Um, if you listen on Apple Podcasts and you want to give us a five-star review, that's massively appreciated and really helps other people find the show. Um, so have a good week, and we'll see you next Tuesday. See you soon. Bye. <laughs> Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production.